Good morning, church. It's wonderful to be with you. I want to say a special thanks to uh, Tyler for kicking off our series last week, our newest series. We're calling it Great Expectations. Um, a reminder in this season that is called Advent, you guys have done this for several years. I'm happy to step into that tradition. Uh, it's just a, a fancy Latin word for a word that we hear all the time in the Bible. You'll hear it in the text today. You heard it in the text last week. Advent is just a word that means coming or arrival. I just think about it this way. What Advent is about is this season where we pre prepare our hearts for the God who shows up. That's what Advent's about, God showing up. And of course, we have on our minds the sense in which God shows up as a baby in Jesus in this time we call Christmas, but really this season leading up to Christmas is really about preparing our hearts and focusing on not just the fact that he came in the past, but that he is coming again. Uh, and Tyler talked last week about obviously the, the major second advent, second coming of Jesus uh, when he comes back and sets everything right. But here's why I think about it. What we're doing in this time is just literally remind ourselves and preparing our hearts for the God who shows up. He has shown up in the past. He will show up again at the end of time, but God also shows up in our lives. Like he shows up. Jesus says, I'm showing up. The power of my Holy Spirit, the presence of God. Yes, I know he's always here, but there are times when God manifests himself, his purpose, his direction in our lives. And the question is, are we going to be ready when he does? And we're using this simple symbol, you know, in this season, we do a lot with lights and those kind of things. And so the, the thought is really Christmas is about celebrating the light of God coming into the darkness of the world. And so we will anticipate that and kind of just we're prayerfully saying, God, prepare our hearts to go from the darkness of this world to the full light of Jesus. And so the central candle will be lit on our Christmas Eve service and on Christmas Day representing the presence of Jesus, and little by little will lead up to the light of God being full there. And so we are in the second week, candle, the purple candles are about the royalty of Jesus. You'll see the first couple texts we're looking at are kind of stark awakening text of reminders, and so uh, next week it'll be a little more joyful, and that's why there's a pink candle, turns to joy a little bit. So here's my thought, as we light these, I invited you last week, I'll say again, it's just a simple symbol, but think about this. As I'm lighting these, you might think about our focus and our prayer for this Advent season. Maybe is that first line of the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. Remember what he said? May your kingdom come and your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. So here's a simple question as I'm lighting these candles. Where on earth, in your heart or in the world, would you like to see that happen more? Where in your life or in someone that you care about or in the world, where do you want to see God showing up? And we're literally preparing our hearts to expect him to do that. And so as I'm lighting this, um, why don't you turn that into a prayer? And I'll give you a couple seconds of silence and then I will read a, a prayer that is used for this time. Take a moment again just to, to ask God, where, where on earth would you like his kingdom to come? Where do you want to see him show up? And then I'll finish this.
Almighty God, you have sent your prophets to preach repentance and to prepare the way for our rescue and salvation. Grant us the gift of your spirit, we pray, that we may forsake our sins and hear their warnings so that we may greet with joy the coming of our Redeemer. We pray this in Christ. Amen. So I want to begin just by reading the text. Um, What you'll notice is all of the passages for this kind of heart-turning are coming from Matthew. Last week we saw kind of the big picture as Tyler talked about the second advent, second coming of Jesus. For the next three weeks we're going to look at advent characters as a way to think about. Who are people who have modeled for us what this kind of hope and anticipation looks like, or, or kind of the subtitle of the series. Remember, hope is not something we just kind of get dropped down from heaven. We practice it, and we will see in the characters of John the Baptist this week and next week, and the parents of Jesus, the biological parents of Jesus the following week, characters of this kind of Advent expectation and hope. So We'll start in Matthew chapter 3. This is the character, Advent character, John the Baptist, and it is his opening message. It's Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It's the gospel of our Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit, it will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the gospel of our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I pray as the psalmist did so long ago, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As you know, most of the great or important things that happen in life take some form of preparation. Most of the critical things that we do, most of the important things we do, most of the exciting things that we do, it takes preparation leading up to it. I was thinking about that in light of something that happened just a few weeks ago, and actually a lot of folks missed this, including me, and I caught it a couple days later, even though I love this. I want you to think about this, the preparation that it took going behind. I just lit a couple candles here and appreciate Lori and Kyler for making these kind of moments happen. But I want you to think about 
a different kind of candle that was lit just a few weeks ago. Uh, the lighting of something that is literally above us right now. And imagine the preparation it took to make this possible. Would you take a look at ALS. Go for ALS. And we are go for ALS. The Space Launch System is now counting down to liftoff of Orion on its maiden voyage to the moon. Testing the ability to steer the rocket into space. Launch team can no longer recycle the count. Sound suppressor water now flowing 15. under the ML. And here we go. Hydrogen burnoff igniters initiated. Seven, six. about you, but I am just fascinated about everything that goes behind the scenes to make that moment happen. I admit, I kind of like fire and I like the visual picture. That's my favorite picture right there when that thing, the engine's just exploding. But you, can you imagine for a moment everything that has to happen, all of the work of these brilliant engineers before those engines fire? By the way, I just want to drop in here. I did ask permission if I could brag about them for a moment. There's a lot of people at our church. Some people know this. A lot of people do not know that we have some amazing NASA engineers in our church. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Harry and Barbara Kolkhorst um, worked with NASA forever between one or maybe even both of them. They worked with NASA from Gemini all the way to the last space shuttle launch. I, again, I'd heard about Harry before when I met him. I was like fanboying because my, my favorite movies is Apollo 13. I don't know if you ever saw that. And, it, you know, it's true. And all those things happen. And they took that whole thing, that square peg and round hole. Anybody remember this where the filter didn't fit? He did that. There's a picture of him. I think there's in a museum here of the, of the actual thing. He did that. It just blows me away. But I want you to think about all of those kind of things, the people behind the scenes. This is the visual that we see. But think of all the people behind the scenes and the details of preparation before that moment. Sending that thing that's up right now, orbiting the moon for the last time right now before it comes back home. What does it take? Here's just a couple examples that come to my mind. I watched a show on, this is the Artemis Project. You know, there's three different things going up. And within three years, we will have people on the moon for the first time in 50 years. First woman will walk there. The first uh, person of color is just broadening our experience. And we're not just going there for a little bit. We're going to Mars after that. It's amazing. 
But what is it that makes that possible? Here's just one picture. It's just one example of a billion things. Literally, um, that center section called the core stage, it takes a mile and a half of welds to hold that thing together. And there's a word that just triggered me because I try to overcome perfectionism in my life. But they said the welds have to be perfect. If they're not, this thing blows up, costs billions of dollars, and more importantly, it takes human lives. And it's worked. It's amazing what they did. Next picture, I just saw this. There's a packet. There's a, there's a press kit packet. You can look at this. I don't know, you can't read all this stuff, but there's 21 things. This is just the public thing. 21 things that have to happen from 10 minutes down before the ignition takes place. And there were two pages, total, entire pages, going back just to 47 hours before. And now imagine all the things that have happened over the last 10 years. Picture this, the preparation it takes before that fire that we all see on TV has been lit. And I want you to think about that in light of John the Baptist. Because where we come in this story is precisely that moment. It's T-minus hours before Jesus is going to launch his visible public ministry. And John is God's agent of preparation. He is the prophetic engineer behind the scenes, making it possible for people to visually and personally experience the launch of Jesus' fire and light of God coming into the world. Here's a way to think about it. Why did they need to be prepared? Because they were waiting not just 50 years like we have been in the time to go to the moon. They've been waiting for centuries to deal with a pain and a problem that the people of God have been dealing with for a long time. They've had this deep sense of loss and a way to think about it is disorientation. Have you ever had seasons in your life where you just kind of feel lost? You feel kind of disoriented? I love the way one writer puts it. When she said there, there are times of spiritual and emotional homelessness. Have you ever felt like that before? I, I just don't feel at home in the world. Well, Israel had felt that way for a long time. They have a word for it. In fact, there's a whole story for it in the Old Testament. The prophets speak about it a lot. It's called exile. Here's a way to think about it. Israel was brought in. We, we heard the Exodus story where God brings them in and leads them into the promised land. And they're there for a while. And then because of their rebellion, God puts them in what I call an extended time out in exile. And what happens is first with the Babylonian Empire, they start taking captive some of the best and brightest of the future of Israel. Takes them into captivity. And then the Medo-Persian Empire takes over after that. And Cyrus, as the Persian king, eventually lets them go back and kind of rebuild the temple and start over again. But here's the important thing to recognize in this particular pre-launch moment in Jesus' ministry. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people never felt like the exile ended. They never felt like they were fully home. Why? Because they continued to be occupied by an oppressive pagan empire. It was the Greeks after that. And at this moment, the Romans are in charge. And they really kind of overtook the temple system. And a lot of times the, the whole religious system was corrupt because the leaders there were kind of pawns of the political government and all of that. So feel this, the prophet after prophet after prophet has been saying, God's going to come and show up again and he will bring you home. It's the promise of the return from exile. And they've been waiting for century after century after century for that promise. 
And John comes here to prepare them to receive the gift of the return from exile. And he does it with a welcome and with a warning and with a promise. So let's hear some of those images. First, John says, welcome. I'm going to give this welcome statement, the glorious statement. John says it in his opening sermon. Jesus himself will say word for word the same thing in his sermon. Here's the language. The kingdom of God has come near. I know it says kingdom of heaven here. Uh, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. They didn't say the name God, so he's using it as a euphemism. The kingdom of God has come near. God is showing up powerfully and presently in the world. John isn't making up his words here. He's quoting Isaiah when he says, make way for the Lord's coming. God is showing up powerfully. A couple of promises behind that. First of all, the enemies oppressing them will be defeated. Hear this because exile isn't just like the exodus. Didn't just happen, it happens. God is going to deal with whatever causes the pain, not just the symptoms of the pain. Isn't that wonderful? When God shows up, things get healed. But most importantly, the promise of the return from exile, the words the kingdom of God is here, means God himself is personally and powerfully showing up. You have uh, prophecies like Ezekiel that God has left the building. And God's coming back powerfully in the temple. And we know that temple will be a human being And not just a building. God's showing up again. Listen, here's the announcement. And it's for everybody. Do you see the flocks of people coming? The word all comes again and again. All Jerusalem, all Judea, all the whole countryside comes flocking out in the wilderness to hear this. Why? Because God says you can come home again. And I don't ever want to miss a Sunday where one way or another, I need to let people know. You may be sitting here and say, man, I know everything seems great with other people in the world, but I feel lost. I feel disconnected. I feel spiritually or emotionally homeless. Hear the word of the Lord. The kingdom of God is near. God has promised. And what we are focusing on in this Advent season, we are expecting God to continue to show up, to destroy the things that steal our souls, and he will be personally and powerfully present. The kingdom of God is near. That is the welcome of God. By the way, coming on the heels of doing the Exodus story, this should be familiar to us. The place matters. Did you notice the welcome of God happens where? In the wilderness. It's not a mistake. It's a very powerful thing. One of the first things I ever taught when I came and visited this church, I will say again, the wilderness, listen, is not just a specific place. It's also a practice. Don't miss this because it's really powerful. Throughout the Bible, the wilderness is not just talking about a specific place in that moment in time. It is a regular spiritual practice for the people of God. Another way to say it, if you are like me, I've often thought of the different wilderness times in Israel's history or Jesus' life, all that stuff is punishment. It is not. God gives us the gift of rhythms of wilderness. It is a time where people of God are reminded of their identity and reminded of their complete dependence on God and his reliability. And if you see that, you'll see it everywhere in Scripture. Obviously, we just coming off a study of the book of Exodus, you know they had this 40 years in the wilderness where God takes them out of slavery 
where they've been for 400 years. And I love the way one, one guy puts it when he said, the problem wasn't so much getting them out of Egypt, it was getting Egypt out of them. <laughs> so how did he do that? He brought them through the wilderness and taught them to depend on God. And so every morning they got up and there was bread and there was meat there was water. They learned to depend on God in the wilderness. I could give you a bunch of other examples. I'll just throw a couple out there. Elijah, whom John is kind of stepping into visions of his ministry. Elijah in the wilderness is fed miraculously by God and sustained by God. How about King David? Did you know there, King David as a young man was anointed to be king by God. God said, you're going to be the king of Israel. Do you know how long it was between the time God anointed him to be king and the time he sat on the throne? Fifteen years. Can you guess where David spent most of those 15 years? In the wilderness. Because God was training him what it meant for him to be a king under the larger kingship of God. To depend on God in the wilderness. It was not a punishment. It was training ground and it was a gift. And Jesus himself is about to launch his public ministry. But before he goes public, what is the first thing he does after he is baptized? He goes and spends 40 days where? You can say it. In the, in the wilderness. Why? Because he's being punished? No, he's Jesus. He is being formed and shaped and trained. The wilderness times of our lives are gifts. That's one of the reasons followers of Jesus for, I don't know, about 1,700 years have said, leading up to the celebration of Jesus coming into the world as a child, we are going to practice a time of stepping back, slowing down, quieting ourselves a little bit, and preparing our hearts. Did you know God gives us the gift of rhythms and practices of wilderness? And Advent is one of those. It's a time for us to slow down a little bit. And it reminds us of how we ended the series of the book of Exodus. Let me say it again. When we give God space, what does God do? He fills it up. So what are we doing in the weeks leading up to Christmas? I hope in addition to buying gifts or writing your list or, you know, trimming the trees and all that kind of stuff, part of what we're doing is we're making space in our lives and hearts and our church community for God to come fill it up. That's what he does in the wilderness places. So hear the welcome of John the Baptist. As Jesus is about to launch his ministry and we remind ourselves that the God who showed up in the past will show up again. Here's the welcome. You can always, always come home. And everybody is welcome to experience the light and the fire and the wonder of God. That's the welcome. Are you ready for the warning? Here's the warning. Some folks are going to miss it. And that's what John says here. And he says it harshly to some degree. By the way, if you are not a Christian and you read a text like this and you're like, oh, you're waiting for the, oh, guilt trippy sermon. I'm not going to dump that on you. There is a conviction here. But let's first say, do recognize the harshest words that are said in scripture are often, maybe if not always, to religious people. And these are hard words, but they're, they're given not just to religious people, to religious leaders. Jesus will say these same words later on in his ministry. And it's not them trying to beat us up. It is trying to wake us up. Because God is about to do something powerful there. And here's the thing. Some people missed it. 
The creator of the universe came in the form of a child, came and ministered and proclaimed life and healed people. And some people were standing right next to him and didn't know it. So John is trying to prepare hearts for the fire of God to come in the world. And he says, wake up to this. By the way, there's the language of it. The reconciliation of God and the welcome of God comes to those who repent. Oh, good old biblical word, repent. And I don't know about you, as soon as I hear that word again, I'm cringing, I'm waiting for the preacher to beat me up. I'm thinking, conjuring up images of what this word has meant for me. Just for a moment, let's just recognize sometimes we've not handled this word well. If you're like me, the word repent means a couple different things. And it's not the full picture of, of the biblical image of this and what John or Jesus is talking about. But for me, repent, first of all, was like an individual moral thing. It's just about moral behaviors. Is that connected to it to some degree? Yeah, but it's so much bigger than that. Here's the other thing is often, again, in my heritage growing up, we reduced it to one moment in time, one step on the way to becoming a Christian. And we would talk about it this way. You repent. You hear, you believe, and you repent, confess, and are baptized. We check that off the box, and we go on with our Christian life. Recognize in Scripture, and Jesus and John will speak to this. Paul will unpack this later on his book. A couple different things. First of all, Repentance isn't about a moment in time. It is a regular habit and practice of following our God. Repentance is a regular routine thing we do. Now hear me, not in the sense of guilt and beating us up, but in the sense of being honest and open and real and maintaining this dependence on our God. They come confessing their sins. They come owning their brokenness. That's not just something I do once when I come to Jesus. On a regular basis. Again, let's think about the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. What is one of the lines that Jesus invites us to pray daily, regularly? What? Forgive us our sins, our trespasses, as we forgive those who sin or trespass against us. On a regular basis, I come and say, God, I want to keep the slate clean. Now hear me. It doesn't mean he's going to beat us up or throw us in hell if we don't say those words. Or if you die right before you confess. All those crazy stuff we said in the past. Here's the thing. There is a regular, listen to me posture of my heart that needs to be in a place of repentance just like what the wilderness taught us every day they woke up and said we depend on you for our bread by the way that's in the prayer too we depend on you for that I depend on him for my life every day I'm invited in certainly seasons like this I'm invited to say God I owe my life to you not just when I come to Jesus but every day I breathe it is a practice and posture of the heart does that make sense that's why it's wonderful I have the whole seasons where we say part of this season is about preparing ourselves for it it's a great thing to do before we celebrate his birth it's a great thing we do before we celebrate his death burial resurrection have a season of wilderness and saying I'm owning it all over again here's the other thing I've said this before, let me say it again. I visually demonstrate, I'm going to do it again. Repentance isn't a moral term, although it encompasses that. It is a directional term. In other words, repentance means something very specifically. Picture it this way. God is going, he's showing up, he's moving this direction. Repentance means to turn around. If I'm over here, repentance means to turn around and move in a different direction. It is a directional term. 
In other words, God's invitation, hear me, this isn't just the first time when I come to Jesus. Every day of my life, I need to be open to asking God, what is going on inside of me or in my family or my community that I need to have you turn and turn me back to you? It's not beating us up. It's an invitation to keep moving in the direction of light and life. Hear me, as much as these words sound difficult and hard, realize people flocked to hear him. Why? Because there's something about the need for the human heart to be redirected and realigned on a consistent basis. And that's why he gives this beautiful symbol. And some of you have already experienced that. And for you, I want you to think about this as kind of a renewal of what that meant, moment meant. For others, you have not. And I want you to think about the invitation of God for a moment. What is the symbol of repentance in this text and in the Christian life? God does this symbol by inviting us into the water. By the way, at this moment in time, as I say this, if, if we just did the book of Exodus you get the point of what's going on with John, right? Did you see it, right? First of all, John invites them out to the wilderness. And then John invites them to come out of the wilderness through the water. What's going on? It's a new exodus. It's a new exodus all over again. Only on a cosmic scale and a universal scale that goes from the individual human heart to the entire universe. God is breaking his new exodus, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And John says, we're starting in the wilderness and we're going through the water too. That's what this beautiful symbol called baptism means. It is a rebirth into life. By the way, it's not just a little ritual that we do to make sure you're all right. You check a box, a certain age or whatever. I want us to kind of remind ourselves of the beauty and the power and, hear me, the gift of the symbol of baptism. Again, when we put it together with the story of Exodus, we remind ourselves, and we talked about this before, it's the same image of when they're coming and they're about to get attacked uh, by the Egyptians and Moses says to them, you don't have to be afraid of them. God will fight for you. You need only to be still. That's what we do in the waters of baptism. We get to a place in our lives where, here's my word to summarize baptism, it's surrender. I hold up the white flag to say, I can't run my life. So I'm just going to let you fight for me and I'm going to be still. As you immerse the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into mine, it's a beautiful moment of surrender. Think about this a couple different ways. It is surrender from and surrender to. It's surrender from this. Think about this again. You might say, Dean, I'm already baptized. Wonderful. So use this Advent season as a time to renew what those vows meant. Here's what we say in baptism. I'm surrendering to whatever it is that tempts me to find purpose and peace and pleasure other than you. Let me say that again. We look for purpose and we look for peace and we look for pleasure and fulfillment in so many other things. And when we come to the baptismal waters, we're not going to be perfect and we'll fail. But we're saying, God, I'm holding up the white flag to that. And we surrender from it and we surrender to being defined in our purpose and our peace and our pleasure by the one who made us. Isn't that glorious? We're his. By the way, when you are baptized, I say this all the time to people who struggle with self-esteem. Are you ready for this? God says over you the same thing he said over Jesus. This is my beloved daughter. 
and this is my beloved son, and I'm delighted in them. And he says that to the day you take your last breath, not because of you, but because he claimed you. We surrender to that. I've said something like this before. Let me say it a different way here. Let's, let's own the fact that different Christian groups and heritages have taken what was intended to be a gift and have abused it. There's a couple different ways that we've abused the gift of the sacrament of baptism. One is there are some religious and groups and heritages that say it doesn't really matter. It's a side thing. It's kind of a side note. It's no big deal at all. Now, I could spend some time talking about that, but that's not who I'm talking to. I'm going to do what John did. I'm going to talk to the crowd that's here. If that is where you come from, great. There's no problem. I just want to say this is a beautiful gift and an honor, and it's not a side note. But here's what I also want to say. Some religious groups have abused this in the very same way that the Pharisees and Sadducees missed it when they were coming to the waters. What did they say? I love the language of the New RSV. He said, do not presume to say, Abraham is our father. Do not presume that you are prepared for the coming fire and wonder of God just because your religious heritage and your background and you did it right. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees did. They presumed they had it right because they were the right religious group in the right heritage and did the right stuff. He said, it's not about that. It's about your heart being transformed to it too. And there are times in the heritage I experienced, and I don't see people do that here, but there are times I've experienced that where I grew up thinking, I'm, I'm presuming I'm good. Why? Because I was the right group in the right church with the right baptism in the right way. And I think God would say over us the same thing he said to the Jews. Paul said to the Jews about circumcision. Man, you can be circumcised in the flesh, but it's not just about the flesh, it's about your heart. So let me say it this way. Baptism isn't about the act. Now, don't misunderstand me. The act's important. If I were talking to the first group, I'd spend more time talking about that. It's a sacred gift for us. But it's not about the act. Let me say this with all the energy I can say. It is about the one into whom we are baptized. That's what it's about. We're brought into contact with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit who meets us there. And we are surrendering to Him, not to our good efforts and obedience. And when we get that, it's a gift. So I do want to say, if you haven't received the gift, receive the gift. Come grab an elder, grab somebody. Let's talk about it. Not because you've got to check a box. Because, man, if you've been dating for a long time, seal the deal, Right? But if you have experienced this, then here's a deeper question. John says, don't presume just because you got the water on you. What is the baptism of the heart? Because, by the way, that's a daily practice too. Well, I'm not saying you jump back in the water. But what did Jesus say? Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross. How often? Daily and follow me. Baptism is a daily recommitment, not the water but what happened in it. It's a powerful thing. I say all that to say this. Why, why is all God's preparation for all of this important? Because God is starting some fires. He's going to light the launch and he's going to make it happen. He's lighting the world up. Here's the promise of Advent. The God who showed up in the past. Yes, we celebrate and we sing about that. He will come back. And the fire of God is going to transform and redeem everything. And here's 
What's powerful, even before Jesus comes back for the great advent of the second coming, he will show up in your life. I promise it. If you're open to it. Oh, I know God's everywhere. But God will personally and powerfully show up in your life if you are open to it. The question is, will you be ready for the fire? Now, if you're like me, the the last part of this passage is really kind of creepy and scary, and I can beat myself up with it. But hear me, I've said this so many times, I'll say it again. The fire of God's judgment is always intended to be refining. It is not intended to be destructive. That's the point of it. It's the metal getting refined in the fire so that it comes out with the strong armor or the strong shield or the strong sword or whatever. We are refined by the fire. And listen to this incredible promise, my favorite verse. We focus on all the other stuff and get scared. Hear this. In verse 11, John says, it's not about me. I can't even care this guy's shoes. It's not about me. Did you know people tried to make it about John? Oh, we kind of blow him off. We're going to spend two weeks on him. Why? He was an incredibly important guy. You know, I was reading about this. It hit me. I'm just preparing for this. Did you know John had disciples on three continents? He didn't even do ministry that long. He had disciples on three continents, and they had to keep fixing stuff. People kept thinking that he was the Messiah. And, and other folks, Paul, he's not him. They were not baptized into John. John himself said, it's not me. Listen to this. Verse 11. Here's the promise. John says, one who is adventing. One who is coming after me is more powerful than I am. You think John's a powerful preacher? Wait till you hear Jesus. It's not about John. It's not about the preacher. You know, I I brag about you all the time. I love this church. But hear me. It's not about the church. If you think this community is amazing, come into the community of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's about him. He's glorious. And he's coming, and he's coming, and he's coming. He's going to show up again and again and again if we're ready for it. Now let me do just a little pastoral thing before we land the plane here. If you are like me, that last part of the verse is oppressive sometimes. Because I still can't help reading about the wheat and the chaff and burning stuff up without thinking, oh my gosh, can you tell me one more time that I'm not, I'm not the one in the fire? And I'm picturing whole groups of people, and he's throwing some of the fire, and he's throwing some somewhere else. Listen, if you are in Christ... That's not what this passage is talking about for you. Let me say that again. If you are in Christ, you don't have to worry about that, but there's still a work of the fire of God. So can I read it in the message translation? I love the way that this unpacks what it means for you and me. By the way, most of these folks were religious people. So it wasn't talking about throwing them to the fires of hell. It was talking about refining them in such a way they didn't miss it when God came. So listen to this. Maybe this is life-giving to you. Message version of 11, 12. The main character in this drama, it's all about him, will ignite the kingdom life within you, a fire within you, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house. If you're like me, oh great, he's throwing people in the fire. Listen, he's going to clean house. Make a clean sweep of your life. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God and everything false he'll put out with the trash to be burned. Did you get that? Here's the wonderful grace of God is when Jesus comes closer and closer to me, what he's going to do, he's not, it's not about throwing, I'm in Christ. He's not going to throw us in the fire of hell, but what he is going to do is in his loving graciousness, he's going to take out all of that stuff that runs away from him that gets in the way of him, that gets, hurts other people, he will refine all of that way so that the only thing left 
is a complete, devoted disciple of Jesus. What a glorious promise. If we let him have his fire do its work, the light of God coming and doing its work. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't just expect the fruit. Produce fruit. He doesn't just expect it. He empowers it. The Holy Spirit is described as giving us what? Fruit. If you're hearing this text to go out and work really harder so you produce fruit of of repentance, wrong move. No, we surrender to the fire of the Spirit of God and it will produce life in us. So what are you going to do in this season as we lead up to celebrating Christmas? Are we just going to buy gifts? Are we going to make our list to Santa? Are we going to do all that stuff? Or are we going to say, God, little by little, can you light more and more and more and more of my heart and our spiritual community on fire with the Spirit of God? I end with this. I think about a guy that's always an example for this when I come around this season. I'll call him Tom. That's not his name. He came up to me. He hadn't been in church for a long, long time. It was years ago. He came up after worship service once and he said look I just want you to know I'm, I'm a wreck but I, I want God and he said I hear you preaching this gospel thing good news and he said here's the reality I believe in God I don't get this Jesus guy I, I, I don't get it lost his marriage he lost his job lost everything blown up in his life but he's desperate enough to say uh, can you clean house can you, will God show up it was so interesting for me because in the past I would say okay I got my five bible studies I'll drop on you have you baptized in a few weeks or you'll just go I'm like, no, what if what we preach and what we read here is really true? That Jesus actually shows up personally in people's lives. What about that? And what if we just bet on that? So I told him, let's talk. We'll talk in a few weeks. But what I want you to do is I invite you to pick a gospel and just start reading until it grabs you somewhere. He's a military guy. So we picked Mark. You know, no baby stories, no, you know, sonogram pictures. Let's just get to the action. And he read it. He called me up and we sat down for coffee a couple weeks later. I'd never forget it because it sounds like there's no way I can say to you what came out of his mouth in a way that sounds like you're like, of course. He said he died for me. And I got to baptize my friend in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because Jesus showed up reading the Gospels. What will he do if we give him space and say, please, show up. The God who came, who is coming again, promises to be here. What are you willing to do? To say, would you show up right here? And right here. And that's our prayer, Father God. As the church prayed, the Bible ends. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Not just in the second great advent. Would you come and direct our lives and Cleanse our lives and lead our lives and celebrate with us and grieve with us. Will you show up? Father, we as a community want to open ourselves up to you to prepare our hearts for your arrival. We don't want to miss any of you. We pray this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.